Hold on to your fucking wizard hats or whatever, folks, because this shit's about to get real with some extended discussion of enlightenment rationality and sociological conceptions of disenchantment. I hope you brought your dang nerd glasses. Alright, we got chapter 5, The Whomping Willow. Okay, so like, I don't know what this chapter is about, but fuck this title. This title sucks. Also, I apologize if my voice sounds scratchy, I'm still a little bit sick. I don't know if you can hear it on the uh, recording, but if you can, I apologize. If you can't, well then, I'm just wasting your time talking about it. So this chapter starts with like an extended description of how hard it was going to be to get everyone's luggage into the car. And, like, the way it's described is, like, some more seriously lazy writing. Like, next-level lazy. Here it is. Here's the here's what they say. Not a word to Molly, he being the dad, whispered to Harry as he opened the boot and showed him how it had been magically expanded so that the trunks fitted easily. This is my favorite thing that the author does. She's like, I bet you're all wondering how they're going to fit all their luggage in the trunk. And you're like, No. I'm not, actually. I don't care about that at all. And she's like, well, I'm going to tell you anyway. And you're like, okay, I guess. Go ahead. And she's like, it was magic. And you're like, okay, I mean, yeah, I figured that. But, like, how did it work? Like, what did it look like? Well, it was magically expanded so that the problem was solved. It was solved through magic. And, like, okay, well, but that doesn't tell me anything. That doesn't tell me how it was done. She's like, magic. But, like, magic. I mean, what did it look like? They had more space because of magic. And so then we get some more descriptions of, like, annoying family travel shit, you know? And Ginny forgets her diary, so they're going to be late. And then they go to the platform, and the narrator does a sort of cursory recap of the platform bit, the whole nine and three quarters thing. But then the magic platform is sealed for some reason. And so they have no choice but to use the flying magic car. And they're like, we can use magic because it's an emergency. And so apparently the train leaves from the platform exactly once per year. And if you miss that shit, you are, you're just out of luck. Like if they didn't have the flying car, they'd be like, oh, I guess we're fifth year seniors because we were late to the train one time. That's an insanely idiotic setup. And then they have some problems with the invisibility cloak on the car. So they keep like flickering in and out. And, ooh boy, muggles are gonna see him. Ron Weasel's dad's gonna get in trouble because he made a magic car out of muggle shit or whatever. And then we get, okay, in fairness, I want to read this sentence because I've been reading all the terrible clunky sentences and making fun of them. But this sentence is good as hell, and so I want to read it for balance and then talk about it. The ground and the dirty buildings on either side fell away, dropping out of sight as the car rose. In seconds, the whole of London lay, smoky and glittering, below them. This is a really well-crafted sentence. It's one of the first in this book where I've actually noticed the, the writing craft of the sentence. But more than just that, there's something kind of cool going on with this sort of dialectical description of the city of London. The book kind of situates London as this awful, dirty place full of, like, crime and seediness, 
then of course, because of the wizard world, there are pockets of enchantment in the sort of Weberian sense. So let me back up for a second. Max Weber was a German sociologist, uh, one of the big three founders of sociology, um, the others being Durkheim uh, and Marx and, and Ice Cube. Weber had this concept of disenchantment. So Weber was writing in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, and among other things, he's writing about the conditions and preconditions of enlightenment rationality, and how basically the world was getting more, quote, rational. And I need to be clear that, that Weber doesn't see this as like a positive thing, necessarily. By rational, he means basically that the world was gearing more towards productivity, trying to be more efficient, becoming more regimented, becoming more scientifically focused. In today's terms, like a rationalist would be someone like Sam Harris, who literally thinks we can derive moral principles from advances in science. And Weber is sort of studying how this ideology is working at the time, and he's noticing that it's making all these changes in people's pre-existing belief systems. And one of his main works is called the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. And in this one, he's noticing that, like, Protestant ideology is sort of slowly molding itself into this capitalistic mode. Where now, like, the way that you show your piety towards God was through your, you know, what, your vocation or calling. Vocation literally means the task that ca God calls you to do. Prefix voke is, is Latin for call. Anyway, and he's noticing this phenomenon... And alongside it is this other phenomenon that he calls the disenchantment of the world. And it's basically like that, you know, that Keats poem about how science will clip the wings of an angel and unweave a rainbow and all that shit. So basically, science is removing the wonder from us, from our lives. And to Weber, this isn't really good or bad. He's not really moralizing. He's just saying, like, we experience this change as disenchantment, and there's this loss that takes place. And when there's loss, there's grief and sadness and often attempts to placate that stuff. And so this is really where literature comes in, because literature was one of the first attempts to re-enchant this world that was broken by emergent capitalism and the sort of rigid, rationalist, technocratic ideology that was required of it. I mean, this is also the rise of the novel, the foundation of... I mean, we, the first time you can mass-produce bigger works of, of literature, things like that. And so this is where the rise of the novel takes place. And you had... Uh, you know, Dickens and Jane Austen and people who are trying to hold on to these sort of like matters of the heart against this totalizing ideology. And then you had stuff like, you know, later you had stuff like Sherlock Holmes, uh, which was trying to like sort of wed the two strains of rationality and reenchantment. The idea being that you can reenchant the world through science. Like, yo, don't give up on this hyper rational ideology just yet. The thing that destroys us might just save us. And I think that the Harry Potter books are very consciously trying to do this as well. And the new thing that they're bringing is, instead of the Sherlock Holmes, like, oh, science can be the re-enchanter, it's, it's saying basically, what if our technocratic, rational overlords were all secretly mystical wizards? Wouldn't that be something? And I obviously find this arrangement problematic for a number of reasons, which I'm sure will be clear as the book progresses. But leaving those problems aside for a second and just focusing on whether the book is doing the thing that it's trying to do, I think this sentence here is the best example of the book doing what it's trying to do very well. So we go back to that sentence. The ground in the dirty buildings on either side fell away, 
Dropping out of sight as the car rose, in seconds the whole of London lay, smoky and glittering, below them. You could probably search this whole series and not find a better thesis statement for what the story is attempting to be than this one. So we have the ground and the dirty buildings falling away. Our protagonist is literally rising above the dirty material conditions of rationalist London. And then we get the description of London as smoky and glittering, which is mirroring the attempt to situate magic within the non-magical world. It's smoky from the London factories, presumably. I mean, obviously this is evoking a sort of Dickensian London. But it's also glittering with the, I guess, like, seeds of re-enchantment. So as I said, I was going to be as fair as possible to this book, and that sentence, both in its structure and its uh, evocations, is fucking great. It's a, it's a really well-done sentence. Now back to the bullshit. Oh, really quick, before we get back to the bullshit. So as Ron and Harry are flying the car, as they get away from London, they start to, like, they have to dip down to, like, see where the train is, and they keep looking over at these little, small, you know, cute towns... And this is back to the idea of, like, that's where the re-enchantment goes, right? It's, it's sort of slowly spreading out. And so the big, you know, overwhelming technocratic cities are slowly swallowing up these tiny communities. So that's another really interesting kind of cool bit there. Okay, now back to the bullshit. So after a while, they literally are like, okay, this re-enchantment shit is pretty cool, but I wish I was on the train so that I could go back to being a mindless consumer of small confections. Oh, and they also fantasize about how impressed everyone is going to be when they land their car very smoothly in front of Hogwarts. And so you know that this shit is going to crash in some embarrassing way. And so after a while, they get nervous that the car won't make it, and it starts, like, sputtering. But then they see the many turrets and towers of Hogwarts. Like, literally, the author uses that phrase to describe Hogwarts again, as if once wasn't fucking awful enough. And so they almost crash into the castle wall, but they don't. Instead, they crash into a tree. And then the narrator does the annoying thing with the adverbs. It says, Are you okay? Harry said urgently. Like, dude, they just crashed a flying car into a fucking tree. How the hell else is he gonna say that? So then, I swear to God, I'm not making this up, Ron breaks his wand in the crash, and the description says, It had snapped almost in two, the tip was dangling limply, held on by a few splinters. Are you fucking kidding me? The tip was dangling limply? How did this make it past an editor? And so then the tree that they hit, I'm guessing it's a whomping willow, uh, starts attacking them. And the whomping willow is like, Yo, you hit me, I hit you back, I'm a tree. And then the car works for some reason, just long enough for them to get to safety. And then they get out, and the car, like, falls backwards and disappears, but not before very conveniently ejecting all their belongings and that owl. And so they all walk, like, they walk all, like, sadly into the school, and everyone in the school's like, Haha, you got your asses kicked by a damn tree. And then they get there just in time for the sorting, which, if you recall, is this insane process whereby an anthropomorphic hat discovers your innate abilities and places you in a social group accordingly. It is literally the least pedagogically sensible way to divide students up that you could possibly come up with, and the administrators who thought of it ought to be summarily dismissed from their positions. So then they see Ginny, and then we get this, like, litany of old friends. Professor Catwoman is there. Mumblecore is up there with his beard tucked into his belt. And old Hagrid is there. And it says he's drinking deeply from his goblet, which I initially read as drinking pee from his goblet. 
And I was like, wow, they are really going somewhere strange with this character. But no, he's just a standard lovable alcoholic, apparently. And then Ron and Harry wonder where Snape is, and they're like, maybe he was fired because literally no one likes him? Maybe he's the biggest piece of shit rat fucker in all the land? And of course he's right behind them, and he's like, maybe I'm right behind you little shits, and maybe you have some explaining to do about, uh, fucking why you flew here in a car. And they're like, oh yeah, it makes sense that he wouldn't be fired. Hogwarts tenure rules are amazing, and there's no way this dude is getting fired before the dude that has all the torture devices in his office. Also, we get another description of Snake's hooked nose, because the narrator still hasn't worked through those issues. And so Snape takes them into his dungeon slash office, and he gets all mad at them for, like, everything. Like, first, a bunch of dirty muggles saw the car fly away, and second, they damaged a very valuable angry tree, and third, they used magic on a muggle thing... But Snape is like, but I can't expel you because you're not in my house, so let me go grab Professor Catwoman. And so then Professor Catwoman asks them to explain, and she's like, and so they do, and she's like, well, why didn't you send an owl? And they're like, oh yeah, duh. And then our boy Mumblecore comes in, and he's like, yo, I'm not going to suspend you, and that's it. Like, that's basically what happens. He's like, yeah, that's fine, whatever. Like, okay, cool, uh, cool plot development. Nice, I like that. That wasn't pointless at all. And then Professor Catwoman magically creates a plate of endlessly refilling sandwiches out of thin air for Harry and Ron to eat. So we can add, uh, could instantly end world hunger but choose not to, to the list of reasons wizards are the worst. And so then Harry and Ron go back to their tower, but they don't, like, know the password to get into the tower because they were in Snape's dungeon office. But very conveniently, Bossy Girl comes up to them and is immediately like, you took a flying car here? Why would you do that? I'm so bossy. And then they get into the Gryffindor Tower and all the other students are like, fuck yeah, you guys are badass, flying cars and shit. And then Harry and Ron look at each other and they're like, yeah, yeah, we are. And that's where the chapter ends. I would say best chapter of the book so far, probably the second best chapter of the series behind the Centaur chapter. But as for this book... It's the best chapter. But that's not really saying much because all the other chapters were pretty um, uh, bad. 